record. Hello, and welcome to Cabinet Cabinets HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Our guest today is Lori Litwack. Lori, are you ready to be great today? I am. Lori is a problem solver, a mother of daughters, a compassionate geek, and an expert coach with a passion for leadership and creating greater impact for women in tech. Her business is called Today's Your Day. She provides inspiration and accountability coaching, helping women in tech find more time, solve life and career problems, and set themselves up for success. Lori's degree in electrical engineering came from the University of Waterloo in Canada. Her problem solving and organizational development skills served her well in her career from IBM and Bell Northern Research to Merlin Guerin in France and through two decades at the Microsoft Corporation. During her tenure at Microsoft, Lori designed networking features and operating systems across divisions, as well as helping craft Virgin One products. In a company-wide role, she created and led training for technical employees. Building on her experience with diverse customers and employees, Lori's cross-team efforts and complex objectives, Lori is intensely dedicated to guiding people and products to success. She listens deeply and brings analytic communication and strategic planning skills to the mix. Her mission is to make the culture and decision-making in tech leadership more inclusive and more innovative. Lori loves to keep learning, working with motivated people, and make an impact on the world around her. Lori, thank you very much for being here today. So what is Lori working on right now? What's keeping you busy? Oh, well, I've got a number of different clients in different areas who are keeping me busy and um, giving me new challenges, both people, technical, and work um, team leadership challenges. So I love to work with motivated people who are ready to take the next step and move themselves and their businesses forward. Lori, so with the, your, your company, how do you help women get more done in tech? Oh, well, um, it's not hard to say, but it's hard to do. So there's a whole bunch of work that I've had to do in my own career and that I help others with by negotiating for what we want, figuring out what we want, prioritizing things so that we're able to say no to the things that don't lead us where we want to go and say yes and make time for the things that are most impactful for us. Um, I also work a lot with gratitude and resilience and being the best I can be in the situation I am so that I focus really intensely where I am, solve problems, and then turn my focus to something else. All of those are skills we can all learn, but they serve us well with moving us forward and giving us a sense of accomplishment and reward when we are working on something challenging. I remember reading somewhere, I don't know how true this is, but like if a man's given like a, a salary amount, he usually like, you know, well, I doesn't agree with you, like negotiates for females more often, like, okay, thank you. And they takes it, you know, is that, have you heard that to be true or? Absolutely true. And uh, when I, particularly when I coach young women just graduating and interviewing for their, their first job or their, their first real job in the industry they want to work on, work in, I say, Okay, you get an offer and you, it's mostly what you want, but figure out something to ask for more. Because in all of my years, most men that I interviewed and hired asked for more and not a single woman did. Um, and then by the end of a year, two years, five years, they're getting, if they're working comparably because they're technical strong people contributing to the team, they're 
salary increases as percentages are the same, but because the guy started at a higher salary or had some other major compensation piece that was slightly higher, they end up in a disparate place and uh, that doesn't serve anyone very well. And then I guess a problem, you know, the equal pay not being correct, all that kind of stuff. So it kind of starts from there then, right? Right. Absolutely. So question for you, let's suppose there's a founder out there. He has a, a tech company and he wants to recruit women, women software developers. What advice would you have for this person? So um, a whole bunch of different advice, but one is make sure that you talk to successful women in tech to see what were the key things that attracted them to the positions that they're in. So gathering, you know, we can each have our ideas of what makes a perfect job for a woman, but really getting the information from the women themselves and asking them, how did you become successful? What did you, how did you feel set up for success? What were the key factors in accepting a position one over another position um, gives you real data. The other thing I would say is to look a little more broadly than just the, the tech schools or the, the Ivy League schools because women come in it from a number of different areas and they bring skills and they bring um, initiative, they bring um, potentially a, a more holistic set of skills uh, so that you want to interview and more broadly and, and look around more broadly and ask for referrals from, from women and men who are invested in the success of women. So those are two, two mechanisms I would suggest. Yes. From experience, have you seen a difference in developers that come from like, well, like a four-year college and, or, or, or what we call them now, like I see code academies? What's your thought on those? Um, I don't have a lot of experience with the code academies. Um, I know I am a big fan of um, community colleges and programs that take people who are really motivated and give them the skills to start up in the tech industry because, again, I think that there's a need. Um, there's, there's open jobs and there's a need for diversity and, and inclusion across those things. So, um, but I haven't personally hired people with Code Academy experience versus for a year. Typically the people that I got to hire and inter well, interview first and then hire were from four year universities. Now for the, now, now you know, you mentioned something about tech schools. Is there a difference between like a, a, a four year degree in computer science sorry, from like, you know, University of Washington or like a lesser known school or is it pretty much all the same? Um, so a lot of schools have a, a bunch of great degrees. Um, the things that I look for when I interview is both the technical skills, but technical skills if you've got the mindset and the, the right um, initiative to learn can be, can be learned on the job. Um, you have to have the basic set of skills and then there's a whole bunch of stuff you're going to learn on the job. The things that I also want to see are team fit. You know, how well did you work with a team? Did you understand how teams work together? How do you deal with complexity and complications? Um, how do you deal with conflict? How do you make other people great in a team? Because there is very few, um, there are very few jobs in, in large companies, even small companies, where you're not intimately working with teams and working on top of other people's code and understanding how to bring these things in, understanding the impacts on customers. So you want to have um, a sense of a variety of those, those skills, not just the, the technical um, skills. And I think those can be learned in community colleges and four-year degrees. And that, that is why I say cast a wider net than just sort of um, highly rated technical degrees. 
Yes. So I, I was in a LinkedIn conversation a little while ago, and basically, I guess was there's some new software developers graduating from college, and they're talking about how it's hard for them to find a job because, like, you know, places want they want you know entry level position, two or three years, you know, experience. And some of them telling them, well, what they want you to do is like go do the internship, you know, go get put some stuff on here to get get some you know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you how do they work through that? Um, so uh, where I went to school, it, we had a work study program, and so um, I recommend if you're just starting university or in um, a technical community college that you look for places that have those work study programs set up for you, so that you get technical experience as part of your education. Um, that doesn't really answer the question of people who have graduated and say, now what do I do when these entry-level jobs ask for two to three years of experience? And I would say, um, look for places where you can add value. Perhaps there's a tech cooperative of um, a nonprofit that you would love to, to work with and help them move their database forward of, um, or um, look for places that you and some colleagues can get together and um, make a, an app um, for the experience of doing that, getting it through onto the Google Play platform or the iOS, the iTunes store. Um, and then also apply for things that ask for two to three years of experience that you don't have because all they can do really is say no, but you may also get some really good um, um, folks who look at what you've done and are interested in interviewing you. That's some great advice. So let's take this situation. There's a, of course, you know, diversity is a big, big, big thing now. It's been, it has been big for a while. So you're, you're, you're a founder of a company and you have like, you know, 14 white males and you suddenly, you're, oh man, I got to hire somebody who doesn't look like us. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Because from my point of view, if I'm you know, a female and, a, and I see a company of 14 white guys, I'm thinking, you know, might just um, hire for the sake of it or do they want all my skills? I'd be, I would be kind of hesitant because I go there, you know, so how does, how does that work through that? All right, so if I understand the question correctly is, um, if you have a a pretty non-diverse company, how do you um, recruit or um, make a more inclusive culture? Or is it, okay. And at at the same time, if you're a candidate and you're not male, you get a recruiter, wouldn't wouldn't you think, well, they have 15 white guys, do they want me for a skills of talent or do I just, you know, like a quote-unquote diverse hire and then bring me on because somebody's forcing them to, you know? Right, right. Okay, so those are great questions. Um, one, first, I would say that the, inform- the evidence is coming in stronger and stronger with longitudinal studies um, across not just the U.S., but in Europe as well, that diversity inclusion, when you get to a certain point, both in the upper levels of a company, but also across the company, that they have stronger earnings, right? So there is a bottom line reason to have a more inclusive, diverse culture. Um, it is more innovative. It is more, um, it is more teamwork oriented, and those things have bottom line effects. So that is the a good reason to go and do it. Now, in terms of um, in terms of both selling it inside your company that is that is all fourteen white males, and also selling it to some candidate coming in, I would say that you address it head on, right? For the team itself and for the company, you say. I know that we will be a stronger team if we have more ideas coming in, more diverse opinions and 
um, life experiences, and that is what we all should want because it leads to better coding, it leads to better product design, it leads to better outcomes. Um, and if people are not bought in, then you have to deal with that first before you bring some, somebody in who is not going to be set up for success. Um, then when you're dealing with, with candidates and they look around and go, oh, I was just interviewed by four or five white guys and I don't see anybody else who looks or feels or whatever like me. And again, diversity comes in all, a lot of different flavors, not just gender and race, and, um, but a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I would say you address it with the candidate as well and say, you know, we have done this work to, to educate ourselves on why it is good for business and good for the team to set our, ourselves up for success and you up for success by including you and growing the uh, inclusive culture in our organization. Once you can do that, you can have a more honest um, conversation about what setting everybody up for success looks like. And by that, you can then, as a candidate, I feel more comfortable that you've done some of the work, that it's not going to be all on me to make this company more diverse, um, and that you see, that you recognize that there will be some potential bumps along the way, some changes to the way things are done, and I, as a candidate, feel wow, I could take a chance on these folks because they're doing the work along with me and that is going to set me and them up for success. Thank you, Lori. Lori, next, talk about telling you were success in the past, what you learned from this success and what our listeners can learn from your success. All right. Um, so I, I think about successes and they're always sort of failures woven into them. And, um, but I will, I will tell you about one particular um, job within Microsoft that I just had a ball doing. And when you have a ball doing something, it's more likely that you're going to be successful at it. Um, at one particular juncture, I was asked to, oh, I've worked on some security products for, for Microsoft as we were shifting a lot more focus and a lot more um, personnel investment into making our products more secure, helping our customers become more secure against as the internet exploded and malware started flooding into our customers' computers. Um, once we had shipped a sort of first set of products, I was asked to take a look and do some strategic planning around what we should invest in next. And because it was huge, this area that we could invest in, um, it felt a little overwhelming, but I was just really excited to dive in. Um, and so I talked to stakeholders within the company. I looked at, um, I talked to a bunch of customers who were sort of on the leading edge of, of um, well, potentially being attacked or having assets that, that malware wanted to grab. Um, I looked at what competitors were doing in the field. I looked at some analysts and talked to some analysts and um, working with uh, folks across the team and across a larger set of teams, um, put together, I mean, it was this huge amount of data and I said, okay, we've got to categorize and put down various things and what is going to be needed and where do our particular talents and competitive advantages allow us to make the most impact for our customers and for our teams to, to work on. So I got this done, I worked and I reviewed it with various people, made changes and presented it and we started working on some of the stuff. We cut down and said, no, we can't do that. It's, you know, it's important, but that's not really what we're good at. And there's other people in the field doing that um, already taking care of the customers. And probably 
eight months after I put this document together with the team and we were starting to work on it, a whole bunch of analysis came out from um, Gartner's and other people in the industry and really validated what we had chosen to work on. And it felt so good um, to both have done the work, um, done this broad, important thing and had people execute on it and then have it be shown to be a, the right set of things to work on. So um, that is the story that what did I learn? I learned to take a chance on myself because my management had taken a chance on me, given me a vote of confidence and go and talk to a whole bunch of people and ask all those questions. And, um, and the other thing I learned was you have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff to be able to make a set of investments work that if you're going to execute on something you're going to say yes to some things and no to a whole bunch of other things and it's true in technical investment and it's true with my time and it's true in my life that the things that i'm going to focus on to say yes to them i have to say no to other things that's great advice learn to take a chance yourself a lot of people don't do that they like the confidence that's good and then you being people don't realize how important it is to say no to things you can't do everything you got to learn how to say no or yeah. to, of course strategically of course but you know you can't say yes to everything yeah. Yeah, and we know it intellectually, but not we don't always feel it. <laughs> yeah, we always want to please people, and if they think we say no, we're going to not please them, and we'll be on the bad side. Right. Next, the other side, failure. Talk yeah. about your time you failed in the past, what you learned, and what we can learn from this. All right. Well, I have so many stories about failure. I'll, I'll start with one, a fun story from, it was not fun at the time, when I started at Microsoft in 1990. And um, I was what was called a program manager and I was had responsibilities for a number of different technical products um, and projects and features on an operating system. And coming in, I had technical skills, um, but again, going back to, I didn't necessarily have the how do I say no or how do I prioritize skills? So I was given a set of things and, and probably every month I was given something else. And six months went by and I thought that, that my management and my team would have a sense of what, like, what does a full job look like? And I assumed that if they were giving me more stuff that I hadn't reached that full set of responsibilities yet. What I didn't realize was that I was supposed to say, whoa, I have too many things to do. Which one of these is most important? As you give me something new, does that rank higher or lower than the things I'm working on? Because at some point, of course, it all came crashing down and I had dropped what my management, without my knowledge, thought was the most important thing. I was weeks behind on delivering what I was responsible for because I had said yes to too many things. So I um, learned some valuable lessons which I implement and have to relearn so many times, such as asking for help and saying no and prioritizing and um, a certain amount I've, I've got a lot more time management skills than I did then um, and every now and then when I'm starting to feel overwhelmed it's like whoa okay now I have to step back and talk to the people that I'm um, supposed to give stuff to and say you know which is the most important both to me and to you and how are we going to get things done and what things making sure that I'm communicating the things that are not getting done because I'm going to have a lot of things on my list and a lot of things to do in my job in my life. And I need to know which are the highest and most important and most impactful things. And what are the things that I'm going to hand off? I'm not going to do. They're just not important enough to, to spend time on. Yes. That's great advice. Also next talk to us about a person who helped in the past and how they helped you. 
Okay, well, um, thinking about a person I, you know, so many people have helped in the past, um, but I'm thinking about the manager who gave me that strategic planning assignment. And um, one, he had, a, he had um, when he hired me into the team, because I was always, already working at Microsoft and this was a new team, um, he hired me to be a part-time group manager, um, a group program manager. And it's like, wow, you're going to hire me at part-time because I was working 20 hours a week at the time to manage a team. I was very impressed and inspired by his confidence in me and his clarity on what he thought success was in the, the role that I was doing. So I learned a lot from him about being clear about what success looks like. The other thing that I loved was his way of being, his management, his leadership style. Um, I had been around a lot of good managers, mediocre managers. Um, the good managers were often really outgoing and really loud. Um, and I hadn't seen this particular leadership style, which maps better to mine of more quiet leadership, but really clear um, and really powerfully supporting um, and lots of great feedback. And so um, what did I learn from him? I learned that you can be um, quiet and slightly more introverted and be quite successful uh, in leading others. And um, I love that he set really clear expectations, communicated really well and gave great feedback. Yes. Next. Tell us something about you that most people don't know. Of course, you know, your close family, close friends know this, but most people that deal with you on a daily basis don't know this about you. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in a small family, and so there is just, you know, my parents and my sister and me, and um, I didn't really learn to cook growing up because I was really focused on a lot of other things, and I loved numbers and puzzles and all sorts of things that were, did not involve cooking and, and, and food. Um, but I married into a large family and grew to love big dinners and having lots of family around. Um, and so now I can, you know, 30 people come over, I can make a dinner just like that. And we can have a meal, we can gather around and, and talk and play. And I do not get stressed when 10 people show up, 20 people show up, 30 people show up because it just, it can all happen. So that is something that not everybody who works with me knows that is true in my life. That's great. So you <laughs> talked about how you had a love for the STEM early in life. I remember reading somewhere where thinking like, I probably have these numbers wrong, but like 90% of young girls like STEM engineering, by the time they get to high school, it's down like 25, 30%. Mm -hmm. is it, do you think this is the societal pressures causes that? Or what do you think that is? Um, yeah, I definitely think that society um, is, is part of that. I don't think that they get, uh, you know, these are generalizations and these are my opinions. There's, some of them are backed up by studies. Um, the way that we talk to girls about their career aspirations are not necessarily as sort of pushy as we are with men. My parents told me that you never know what happens in life. You're going to have to be able to support a family. And that changed my perspective on what I was going to go and do and study and, and aspire to because um, having to support a family is a bigger responsibility and I wanted, I wanted to put my talents to work. That was the other thing that, you know, I have, each of us has talents and I was encouraged to find mine and to go and pursue them. Um, I know that when I was in engineering school, 
um, I reached out to the network of um, high school guidance counselors to tell them a little bit more about and create a day on a workshop on campus at University of Waterloo in Ontario to tell them more about engineering because they don't necessarily know much about engineering and all the myriad ways it is responsible for solving human problems in the world. And I wanted them to learn more about that, to be able to speak about it with a little passion to the young men and women who came through their doors so that not only the people who were sort of quote good at math would sort of think about engineering, but a broader perspective and set of, of young women and men would go, oh, you're saying that I could solve this type of bio biomedical problem if I go and study engineering, or I can help with, you know, creating a world that deals with water pollution and air pollution better. I wanted them to have those types of, of ideas and put those in the heads of a wider variety of people. Yes. Laurie, do you have a book you can recommend for our listeners? Well, um, a lighthearted but truly classic book that um, about the paths that we can take in life is how I name my company. So, um, Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss is how I got the name Today is Your Day uh, for my business. So, uh, it talks about all the problems that can occur as you move yourself forward in life and ways to get around it with courage and hope and uh, support. Dr. Sue, such a genius. <laughs> he is. Lori, can you share some of your social media platforms either for you, yourself, or your company, so people will reach out to you? All right. Well, um, I am Lori Litwack on LinkedIn, and I have a number of um, things on there that talk about workshops and, and the ways I interact with people and some of the um, nice, wonderful things that people have said about me as, um, in, as my clients. Um, and then you can find Today's Your Day LLC on Facebook. Um, and I, I have, you know, I can be reached Lori at todaysyourday.biz. And for our listeners, we have the links to all her social media platforms in our show notes. Lori, we're coming to, come to the end of our talk. Can you provide any last minute advice for our listeners? Um, well, I think our power comes from embracing who we are with self-compassion and confidence and asking for support along the way. I know that that has been key for me. Um, so I know what challenge I need to take on next. You know what challenge you need to take on next. And reaching out for inspiration and accountability makes that climbing your next mountain much easier. But I really think that Dr. Seuss says it best. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting, so get on your way. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Lori. Thank you very much for being a guest today. I know you're a really busy person. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you. Thanks. To our listeners, thank you for your time as well, and remember to be great every day. Thank you.